On the 21st of September, Edinburgh Yes Hub organised an incredibly impressive event in the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh. It was the big indie debate chaired by Leslie Riddick. Um, the panel was Michelle Thompson, Colin Fox, Gillian Mackay, Robin McAlpine, Selma Rahman and Mike Small. Here are the questions that were put to the panel and their answers. Seven out of eight polls since May have shown the lead for, a lead for no, and clearly that contrasts somewhat with last year. So I'm just asking folk, why do we think that that's turned around? The honest answer is, I don't know. Um, but I do think, I'm so heartened to be here this evening because one thing I've been saying to people consistently, and it's fair to recognize and acknowledge here that there's been quite a bit of uh, argy-bargy in our wider movement, where we've allowed our disagreements to overshadow our agreements, and we have been energetically and sometimes over-enthusiastically agreeing with, with each other on social media. And while we're not doing that, we're not engaging with the people that really matter. It's so heartening to be here this evening because one thing I will consistently say through the course of it is if you do anything for every five minutes you spend agreeing with somebody, spend double that time working and engaging with somebody that you don't agree with. I think the post-COVID landscape is incredibly complex because although you say that, you probably need to segment it down. How are people thinking and feeling? So, for example, Brexit has caused a huge shunt for certain types of people. So I think the, the picture is more complex than that. But I would genuinely say I don't think that there has been enough engagement and reaching out to people, which in fairness, in the midst of a pandemic, has been a bit difficult to do. But we need to start that now. OK, Mike Small. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a number of things. I think people are scared. I think people are tired. I think people are exhausted. I think we're living through completely unprecedented times. And uh, whilst I think it was right that we didn't campaign during the pandemic, because I think that would have been wrong and would have been seen to be wrong, I do think that uh, there's been a failure of leadership in that period. So I think whilst it's right not to campaign, I think that the Scottish Government and the SNP could have been building the institutions and building momentum for change, and I think they failed to do that. Okay, um, let's come to Colin. But I mean, the paradox is that those big majorities for independence were happening with no campaign for independence whatsoever. Leslie, I think this is one of the three major questions the independence movement's got to address. Where is the majority? Where is the majority for independence? That's surely the principal question we've got to consider. So you asked there, why was support for independence 10% higher a year ago during the COVID pandemic? That was your question. And the answer is because at that time, people had a great deal more confidence in the way Nicola Sturgeon was handling the pandemic than Boris Johnson, and it was a reflection of that. It was also a reflection of the fact that Nicola Sturgeon, as the first minister of the country, was given an hour every day on the state broadcaster in a press conference to make the case that she was making without any opposition. So those circumstances, those were the reasons for it. And frankly, I didn't think they were good at the time. I think the case for independence 
that we support everyone in here, we have to keep making. We've been in the minority, I have to say to you, my feeling is since 2012, we've been in the minority. Those, those uh, individual uh, uh, polls during the referendum period and more recently are flies in the wind. They're not sustained, they're not substantial. And I think the fundamental thing we need to discuss and consider is why are we behind in the polls? And if it is, as I believe, there's a weakness in our economic case, then we have to address that. Okay. Tempting as it is to get wellied straight in on that, let's give everyone a shout first. Gillian. So what I love about the Yes movement is that it's a movement of momentum. And I think the pandemic is a real, has been a real stumbling block with that, that we haven't had the ability to continue creating that movement and that movement forward and not been able to have lovely events like this where we've all been able to come together and share ideas and create that passion and that buzz around it. The pandemic's definitely put a dampener on that. The, the situation we find ourselves in now is fundamentally different to seven years ago and Brexit has to be a factor in that and I think I think Mike's right that fear is a very as we saw in, in the original um, referendum fear is a hugely powerful tool and I think a lot of people are quite frightened about their, econ their own economic situations their own health and various other things as well that have been brought to light as a result of Brexit as a result of the pandemic and all these things coming together I think creates that level of uncertainty that people who may have been soft yes previously are seeing the problems that come with Brexit and thinking that Brexit and Scottish independence will cause the same things and I think that's fundamentally not I think that's for for all of us a link we have to fundamentally break and show that actually this is a wonderful movement of hope and a wonderful movement that we should keep going to have that hope coming out of the pandemic coming out of Brexit and to move towards the next referendum. Okay, I mean, obviously the Greens are in government now with the SNP. Um, I mean, can you, I know what you're going to both tell me, you kind of, you kind of sort of speak at a turn, but is there a big master plan in there? So obviously we're two separate parties and that was the politician answer you were probably all waiting for. Um, we, our party council, are consulting with the rest of the party and from that really grassroots movement that, that we are, um, to, come up, to come up with a, a green yes manifesto, a green yes um, plan for, how, for both how we deliver an, an independent Scotland, but also how we bring people with us. Because that's something that the, the polls are, are showing that we need to do, and we do need to fundamentally bring people with us, change those, those soft yeses that have maybe gone no back to yes again, and make sure that it is a hopeful outlook for Scotland post-Brexit, post-pandemic okay. and moving forward. Right, Selma is shaking her head there. Can you wheel the microphone over? Hi, thank you. I think that was a very brave statement that we've got to take the people with us because I quite think, quite genuinely and very respectfully to the politicians on the table, that the politicians have forgotten about the people as far as the independence movement. That's and for me, that's being totally honest. Like everybody else, I sat on the couch, I watched the First Minister. If it hadn't been for the First Minister, God alone knows what would have happened. But 
it then became a case of where was everybody else, what were they telling us, what was happening, and there was not that connectivity. And the Yes Movement has had to keep itself together. The Yes Movement, call it what you will nowadays, has got to, to the stage whereby, if it wasn't for the Yes Movement, where would you guys be at the moment? And that's been totally, that's my question. You would be sitting in a parliament that has lost its connectivity with the people as far as the Yes Movement's concerned. Because Yes, people are tired, they're exhausted, and they are definitely frightened post-Brexit. And where has been the leadership in relation to where we want to be, i.e. an independent nation again? And that leadership isn't coming from political parties, and we don't have necessarily a combined yes movement with one leader. I'm not advocating that, but whatever is happening in the grassroots from the Yes Movement is coming from us and it's not coming from politicians. I've asked to just come back on that. One thing that I would point out is that in this fantastic evening tonight, we all have a single Aim. What that looks like in terms of the type of Scotland we want to be, we don't know. How we get there, we don't know, but we are all devout yes supporters. But we have to remember that, regrettably, there are a great many of our fellow Scots who are not. And what we've got now in movement terms is, I describe myself as yes cubed. So emphatically do I believe in it. And we have a great many people on the other side, which is why I said earlier, we could have a grand old time tonight violently agreeing, but how will that move the dial? And I suspect you're going to come on to that. But I would definitely remind people of, of that here. Who, the voices in the middle, which is why it's so important that the collective voices of yes gets back together. And, and again, I do agree with that. Right, I'm sure Gordon Brown would be chuffed to think that his middle Scotland has managed to waft its way into this debate. But anyway, um, Robin, uh, the, the question, where is the independence majority? Okay, so we've just done uh, an analysis, we published an analysis paper on this that Craig Dale did. So we tracked um, independence support right back to 2014. Um, now, one of my bugbears is that we've got only limited polling data and not very much qualitative research, so we know what's happening, we don't know why. So once more my plea, more research, more knowledge, better idea of what you're doing. What you infer from what you're seeing isn't negative exactly, um, and I'll, I'll really simplify this, but actually not many people are moving. Most people are staying where they were. There's more movement from either side into don't know than there is from one to the other. Um, and what that does is because it's usually reported with the don't knows removed, it's, it, just, it makes the picture look like it's moving more, but there's more people that tend to move from one side or the other into don't know than jump over to the other side. And then if you look at the pattern over the long term, this is where it gets a little bit, a little bit dispiriting because if you track what's happening, it really does seem that we tend to rise and fall less by what we do and more by what shenanigans get up to at Westminster. So if you look at where the rises and falls, they don't really coincide with things you can identify in the independence movement. They tend to track to Brexit, or they and, but they fell away very quickly after Brexit. 
the shock of Brexit caused that, or they track to Boris Johnson getting another term, or they track to you know the, the omni chaos of the Brexit, the COVID response down south. And I think my lesson from this was there's not as much movement as it looks like. There's still a lot of people floating about in the middle, not sure. And what's largely happening is we're rising and falling according to events rather than because we are specifically doing anything which is moving the voters around. So what we need to do is do a bit more work on what's causing some of the volatility. Again, we know some of this, but we don't know a lot of it. One last thing, and this is kind of a negative. And if you look at the, the kind of key question, why did it drop off so quickly? Because it really did quite drop quite startlingly this time. And uh, again, this is another one of my bugbears. It does track to scrutiny during the election. So if you look at where it really started to tail off, it was during the election campaign earlier in the year. And I am very concerned that is because when we get the chance to be on a national stage and actually be talking about independence, um, the voice that the public is hearing is ducking the subject. So what they are hearing is, this is something that will happen in due course, I think was the terminology. And they're saying, yeah, no, but we were asking about the currency. Oh, no, that will happen in due course. So I think that the, the two big lessons are we really need to start to think about taking events into our own hands in terms of shifting votes rather than hoping that it will somehow just shift by osmosis. And secondly, we need to wake up to the fact that when we are getting screen time on independence, it's causing drops, not rises in support for independence. And I don't think that's a fundamental problem. I think that's to do with the way that we're responding to the questions we are being asked in the media and the way that feeds into people's perceptions of whether we're ready or not. So get ready, answer confidently, and come up with a coherent and consistent plan for not waiting for them to find us, but bringing them with us. And that's what we're not doing. Okay, um, there's a lot of questions that kind of flow from that, but one immediate one that has been asked was, you know, the crystal ball moment. When will we have IndyRef 2? And just allied to that, you can choose which way you want to look at it. If Boris does go for an early general election in 2023, will that kibosh an IndyRef 2 that's left that late? So let's start this time with Colin. Well, I, I, I think... I have to say, I have to be honest, I haven't come here to flannel anybody. I think it'll be a long time. I don't see there being a second referendum before 2023. Your question's in two parts, Leslie. Um, when will we have IndyRef2? Well, first of all, we all sit here and we know we can't have IndyRef2 until Boris Johnson gives his permission. This is reserved to Westminster. There isn't any other route to achieving a legal binding referendum other than getting the bill passed at Westminster. And I've heard over the last few months, I'm sure my colleagues, everybody in this room has heard, they've been posited that we'll go for some advisory referendum. And I have to say, that was catastrophic in Catalonia. I don't see Nicola Sturgeon repeating that. And neither do I see her, and this is a, a woman who I sat beside in the Justice Committee for four years and we remember as a lawyer by training I don't see Nicola Sturgeon going to the court of session and try to overturn the 1997 Scotland Act. That'll make money for lawyers. 
who have made a fortune out of this movement one way or another in the last few times, it won't get you a second referendum. The question we have to consider and face, and we have to look down the barrel of a gun here, an ominous metaphor, I'm sure. How do we persuade Westminster to give us a second referendum when there are 600, and Michelle used to be on the benches, 600 MPs who are not going to give us that second referendum, not going to give you independence? So the answer to the question for me is somebody who's a veteran of the anti-poll tax struggle is you have to begin to consider an extra parliamentary struggle for independence. So while you're considering that, let me address the second question. Boris Johnson 2023, and to talk about him going for a general election. And of course the answer is, and I was talking to Mike about this earlier on, it's how does Boris Johnson keep getting away with these misses that he makes? How does he keep getting away with the stumbles in the UN? How does he get away with the stumbles he made last week and the week before? And of course the answer is, the opposition is garbage. The opposition is garbage. That's how he gets away with it. And Boris Johnson will call another election as soon as he thinks he can win it. And the way Keir Starmer leads the Labour Party, he probably will go for it in 2023. So that's a doubly depressing prospect on both counts for this movement. And I think we have to consider the consequences of looking at that very seriously. Boris Johnson has made it absolutely clear he's intransigent. You're not getting a second referendum. Come ahead if you're hard enough. And we have to be hard enough. And these two options about the Catalonia style of advisory referendum or going to the court of session are not the manifestations of a movement that's hard enough. We're looking for a kid's way out. We're looking for an easy option rather than recognising that we have to make Boris Johnson an offer he can't refuse. And if that means extra parliamentary activity, that's what it means. So, uh, Selma, what do you reckon to that? I worry that he will call one in 2023 because, exactly as Colin has said at the moment, what is happening in the rest of the U UK? What are they on? What are they drinking? What's in the water down there that they accept this? And it's without a doubt the fact that there is no opposition. There is no calling within the rest of the United Kingdom to see any other way out of the problems that they've got. It's very difficult for people to openly say, oh God, I really made a mistake when I voted for them. When you're talking about the Red Wall, whatever you're talking about, they're not gonna admit that it's getting worse instead of getting better. And they're hanging in there thinking, well, you know, he wasn't that bad in London and it kind of worked all, out, all right. And I'm sure it's gonna work out all right this time round. And that's what's actually happening. And that is so frightening because in the process, we're going down the pan. What is happening to the, the fish in the egg? What is happening to uh, distribution at the moment? What is happening to the National Health Service? Everything like that is being hived off slowly. And I don't wish to sound, ag ag not agrophobic, I don't wish to sound anti-English, but they're just not up to the task in England to provide an opposition. And that is what Scotland has to be. Scotland has to be the opposition to show that the rest of the United Kingdom is not working. And therefore, when it's not working for them, we've got to make it work for us. 
And our movement within Scotland is what's going to keep that going. The politicians down south won't keep it going, and the numerical imbalance in Westminster won't make it keep going. But okay. 2023 is going to be a very dangerous time if he calls that general election. And quite honestly, there's nothing that's going to knock him off track. Whereas 2023 is going to give him more time in the future. He might look a fool, but he's not that much of a fool. Right. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Robin, Robin, I did notice when, when Colin was, was talking about the need for direct action, the, the advisory referendum idea, court action ain't going to cut it. Kids, you know, toy, toys, I can't read my own writing without the glasses these days. But you all got the drift. Do you agree? I mean, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, I wrote a whole paper on the exact subject. This is the Robin. Um, of course, you've written a blooming paper on <laughs> no, everything, right? I, I did, but um, you're here now, so give I us did a... within our grasp, and I tried to really make the strong case that we got a gentleman's agreement when we thought we were going to lose. We're not going to get a gentleman's agreement now unless the difficulty of not making the agreement is bigger than making the agreement. We have to make change the balance of pain on Westminster to make them believe they can't keep stonewalling us. Because right now they can keep stonewalling us indefinitely. They don't lose votes out of it. Their votes up here like them stonewalling us. Their votes down there either like it or don't care. Um, we cannot, uh, we can't, you know, hope and appeal to their reason. That Their reasoning is absolutely sound in this and it is. Don't talk to us, it doesn't do us any good here. The outcome of this is, I, I, I mean, I've got to say, in the week after Brexit, I wrote a piece which said there's next to zero chance of an independence referendum by 2018. And everybody in the team said, don't publish that, you'll depress everybody. Um, but there wasn't. And the, the belief that we were possibly going to get it, I think, wasted two years of the movement's time. And I've got to say, honestly, now my view is the chances of a referendum in 2020 23. They're not quite zero, but they're functionally there. Um, Michelle, everyone's given up. Well, not everyone. Well, everyone's spoken that so far has given up on the SNP actually having a referendum and, and even questioning whether that's the best approach. Well, I wouldn't say everyone. Uh, I don't think <laughs> the panel have given some views. That's what I mean. Your, your colleagues <laughs> yeah. so far. Yeah. Uh, well, I wouldn't. You have to remember that the SNP is a very broad church, and for what it's worth, uh, I continue to give personally everything I possibly can. My absolute focus is on everything that leads us as much as possible towards independence, and I'm not alone within the SNP, and I'm not alone within the Scottish Parliament. The very real problems, though, of how we get there, of which I have sympathy with a lot of the views expressed on the, the panel, I don't believe for a minute that Boris is going to give us a referendum. It's not in his interest to do so. Scotland is so asset rich, he'd be a numpty to let us go. I have some sympathy with what Colin's saying and with what Robin's saying about the pain needs to be greater on the other side. And I also have a great deal of sympathy with the narrative and the messaging around this about asking for permission. We are the people and we decide, which is why 
as well as the SNP, and I accept that responsibility in my own small part as a backbencher, but also the wider Yes movement. We have a great deal of organisation to do. There's a great deal of work, which we'll come on to in the second half about what do we need in terms of some of these dodgy questions that we've got different answers to, currency, central bank, and so on. There's a great deal of work to be done because if there were to be an independence referendum tomorrow, as it stands at the moment, without those works through answers, we would fail. So it's easy to say it's other people, it's over there. There's a great deal of work to be done and we all play a part in that. So, so can I just ask you then, do you think there will be a referendum by 2023? I would incline to say no. And in that respect, I think that the, a general election, I think there will be one. Uh, I hear stories from Westminster that are already planning that, and guess what? The Tories are confident about winning. So there is a question then about what is the mandate for 2023? I so think that's a genuine and what, question. And what should that be? My own personal view is that I think that the SNP needs to up the ante on that mandate. What a vote for the SNP means. That's only one mechanism, though, of course. There's a great deal others that we need to deploy. Okay, so just as a matter of interest, should Nicola ask for a Section 30 and get knocked back before 2023 to clear I, that up? No, I don't believe so. And the reason I don't believe so is that it goes back to the early ground setting uh, in terms of we're coming out of a pandemic. A lot of people, and we can't forget that, a lot of people are hurting. Uh, a lot of people are on their financial hunkers and they need support. The people have lost friends and so on. And there's going to be a period of time coming out of that. We've got a great deal of work to be okay. done. I don't believe she should. At that point, I think we should be using the next general election to change, to shift the dial. And we've got a lot so of work to do. So as a de facto independence referendum? No, I'm not suggesting that. I, I think we need to do more around what a vote for the SNP Okay, is. right. We'll have to try and prize the, the mystery out of you later, perhaps. But just uh, let's have uh, those who haven't spoken so far on this question. 2023, will we have an Indy Ref? And indeed, is that what we should be going for? Now, I've lost my order here. Who hasn't spoken? Mike. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. There's a, a declining benefit from them suppressing democracy. You know, we've talked about how uh, the Yes movement needs to make the case and build the case, but so does the unionists. And just saying, no, you can't have a vote has been the single message put out from the unionist campaign in the last three years. And, and there's a jeopardy of that because, and, and I don't think uh, I'm quite as certain as, as other speakers about them just saying no forever, because we know in the last two years there's been glimpses of advisors within the British government that have been saying, this, you can't do this forever. This is not an actual long-term strategy. So they are not united within their own government uh, as that being the plan. So I think it's a bit more complicated because if they just suppress the vote forever and ever, then when the, when the referendum does come, they're gonna lose it because they haven't built their own case. And you know, I mean, uh, Boris Johnson has seen as this great success, but the supply chain in Britain is in the point of collapse. We're talking about a three-day week. Prices, uh, food prices are on the, on the rise, as are energy prices. This is a complete perfect storm and a shambles that he's presiding over. So I think we should uh, give a little less credence to the sort of bulletproof Boris idea. Okay, and finally, Gillian. So I very much agree with um, 
Mike there about that continued um, suppression of democracy. We're seeing it slightly at Holyrood at the moment with that continued creeping of legislating in, in devolved areas and things like that as well, which is a very deliberate and quite a sinister choice to continually make. And I think the, the rumblings about a general election in 2023 when the, the, um, the possibility of a referendum has been, has been voiced, I think continually points to the fact that I think Boris Johnson's overall strategy at the moment is to suppress at all costs. But how long that, how long that can continue to hold out? I absolutely recognise that um, Colin's point on just a complete lack of opposition um, at well, Westminster. What about Colin's other point, direct action? I love a bit of direct action, but <laughs> um, usually, usually more climate related. But um, I, there's only so long that people can sit and be told no, and only so long that we can sit and ask politely before people feel that something more has to be done. Um, I don't know how far we are away from that point at the moment for all the, for all the reasons that Mike said about the about issues from Brexit, um, food shortages, gas, supply, gas um, prices going up and, and all those sorts of things. It is a perfect storm for seeing direct action in some shape or form and to get out from under that that spectre of, of the UK collapse. And I think that's one of that's actually some of the strongest um, messaging around yes at the moment is getting out from under the absolute disaster that is Boris Johnson and Westminster. Right, okay, well look, that's all very interesting answers. Um, we haven't, I'd like to squeeze in a question there about the yes movement and how it needs to organize because it's been rising from each of the contributions you've made, but we haven't got really time to do that justice before the break. So we're going to add it into the big difficulties uh, section which follows. And just before we have the break, uh, we're going to have just a quick shout out for Scottish CND from Lynn Jameson, who's here, because basically Mike is a massive supporter. Whilst in his hospital bed in one ward, he signed up five new members for Scottish CND. <laughs> so uh, please, Lynn. Okay, thank you. So this will be quick. Just two things to tell you. One, um, we're having an event at Fastlane where the UK's nuclear weapons are this Sunday, which you can find if you want to come with us on a bus. Some of us are going to be dressed as sea creatures because we're doing a die-in. It's going to be a short, dramatic dying event um, for the visuals, as you say. So if you want to join us, just Google Scottish CND Fastlane um, this and the 26th of September. So I want to know how many of you have heard of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, great, quite a lot. How many of you are members of the Scottish Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament? Okay, right, let's change that. There's a good few here, but not nearly as many as have heard of us. So just join us. We need you. An independent Scotland will be a nuclear-free Scotland. The first thing it will do is sign the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Okay? So join us. Right. So we've got everybody back in place. Um, 
Well, learning from sort of uh, part one, which was absolutely fascinating, I hope you'll agree. <laughs> Lots of things um, said, discussed, dissected, agreed upon, um, which you just don't hear. What is wrong with our political debate that, you know, we do not hear this sort of debate anywhere? So, um, learning from that, we managed to get through two whole questions on the first half. Um, so, cunningly, now I think to myself, I'm going to clump one question together, which is a kind of multi-faceted hydra of a question, the big difficulty question. And then we're going to definitely get a question in about the shape of the yes movement. We've got to do that. And perhaps logically it comes at the end. I know that I've got a comrade, Eduardo, who is going to, not now, but when we come to that, stand up and give us his tuppence worth because he's got some good things to say. But anyway, let's start off with this multi-headed hydra that we have uh, before us. Because I was trying to sort of look at this, we've obviously got the currency, the border, and the European Union, at least. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, people that have written papers on everything can chuck in another four things, but no, they will not. Because we're going to stick to these three. They're obviously quite related, because the border changes very obviously, according slightly to what you do with the European Union. Um, so, uh, here's the three questions. Selma's looking at me like, don't do this, because I'm going to have to write them all down and remember them. Write them down and remember them, Selma, come on. Um, they're pretty obviously these questions, but they came in. Uh, the first from Ruth Ritchie from Yes Allendale and Yes Lockerbie. Um, right, Ruth Ritchie asks, if you were standing at Gretna one year after Independence Day, looking across the River Sark, what would our reinstated international border actually look like? What would you see? So I guess what she's kind of meaning behind that is what level of hard border do we have there after Independence Day? Um, Stuart Wells has asked a question, how can we get some kind of heads of agreement from the European Union stating that Scotland will be invited to be a full member within an agreed number of months or years of gaining independence? So how can we get some kind of heads of agreement from the European Union? That of course is assuming that joining the European Union is what you want. So you can disagree with that too. Um, and thirdly, Howard Marston, just to kind of complicate the currency uh, questions if it's not complicated enough, says the Scottish coin, a cryptocurrency is in use, could we not use that? Right, that will blow my brain so I'm thankful I don't have to answer it, but basically that is a question about currency, what are we going to do? So we've got there, um, the border, what's it going to look like, how hard, not hard, the EU, will we get some sort of agreement ahead of time, do we want one? Um, and what kind of currency are we going to use and does anyone understand cryptocurrencies enough to talk about it? So, who are we going first with? This time it's Robin. Um, okay, look, I'll answer this really quickly because I, you know, I know some of you have heard me drone on about these quite a lot. When you look at the border, it will have booths with um, barriers which are open. There'll be cameras, that's it. So the capacity to put in border controls if you have to, the pandemic or something like that, which won't be open most of the time, it'll be smart borders, which is what they're called internationally, um, which means that the cameras, cameras um, take notice of the cars coming in back and forward. Any stops that do have to take place do not take place at the border. They take place further in. And so, for example, um, if you're doing spot checks on, on whiskey barrels, you, you, you can do that at the distillery. 
You, you, don't, you don't stop people at borders anymore. Nobody does. Um, this is absolutely bog standard. Travel between any two countries in Europe and you will see something like this. Uh, I'm assuming that we have a free travel area with the UK, but I would be amazed if we didn't have that. Uh, the question about what we do with it then is another one, but um, that's what it'll look like and that's how it'll work. Um, let me just jump to currency. I can do quite a bit in cryptocurrency if you want, and almost all the big central banks are now looking at um, central bank uh, cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, CBDCs. Um, there is a lot of merit in it. There is quite a bit of concern about the surveillance element this gives central banks. If you're, if you're using digital currencies with central banks, they can, they can follow you everywhere. Um, it's also an issue we should consider about environmentally. So each bit of Bitcoin that is traded produces the equivalent of throwing two iPhones in the bin. I know that's surprising, but the computers which do the calculations on Bitcoin are so powerful and they're upgraded so fast because they need to be that they get thrown out in under a year. There's a massive, a massive amount of electronic waste involved in digital currencies. They are not um, virtually in a meaningful sense, but you can't run well, you can try, but you shouldn't run an economy on a virtual currency alone. It's, it's a very bad idea. There's all sorts of social justice reasons, but there's all sorts of central control of monetary policy reasons why you don't want to do that anyway. So the possibility of a secondary digital currency from a Scottish central bank, certainly, but as an addition to, not a replacement for. And I won't even bore you with the many, many reasons why we need to move with pace to having a currency. I'm just going to say, any country caught without a currency of its own during the pandemic ended up at the IMF looking for loans. You need your monetary policy to be an independent country. Finally, the EU. And on this one, the question is one that I am now going to be a bit more, a bit more honest about. We need to start discussing what we mean by EU membership. Um, I am absolutely not against EU membership for an independent Scotland. I am going to emphasise that if you do it fast, the pain is horrendous. So even if we were getting mitigation to EU accession rules, they are still very difficult for a country like Scotland. We are structured like a regional economy, not a national economy. If we join the European Union with a regional economy, we have not built that economy up to be more like a national economy, we will find that we will be stuck and ossified in that situation. We need to think about the progression towards the European Union, how we get there and how we do it. I also warn that the European Union is going to do us no favours. I've so many times heard, oh, but they're more sympathetic to us now. Um, or, or, you know, they let East Germany in. Yeah, the UK, they might be pissed off of it, but it's not the Soviet Union. This is not massive geopolitics here. When it comes right down to it, Joining the European Union requires negotiation with, bilateral negotiation with every single individual member nation state. Um, and one of those is Spain. And it worked by consensus. And we will not get that consensus prior to going through the full processes of joining. So what we, I think we need to be more honest about the, the progression towards European Union membership. What it is that we need to do when we get there. I think we need to have a debate internally about what the pain would be, what pain would be brought with excessively rapid um, integration and what threats there would be to the ongoing Scottish economy. We would be ossified as a regional nation 
inside European Union uh, rules. Robin, can I just ask you to flesh out the pain a bit? Um, that isn't too horrible a way of putting it. Okay. Let because I mean, we, we have been until kind of like last year fully EU citizens, so some people might be thinking, well, how hard is it to get back there? Um, well, there's all sorts of things. I won't, again, I won't go into all, but just for example, the, the obvious one's the budget surplus. I mean, it's brutal. It's 3%. Now, we might get a, everyone else who's got a, a derogation from that just now because of COVID, we might, but they will not tell us that until we start the accession process. And I've seen the argument that you can delay the action as long as you've got a plan in place, which is to say yes, so you can say we'll have the austerity now or we'll have it next week um, on the never-never. It's still there. But there's all sorts of other things we immediately, uh, you would want to spend some time boosting the Scottish economy like every other nation state did prior to entering the European Union. It is way more easy, it's e way easier to do that if we take a period of time outside state aid, competition and procurement laws. It helps us to build up our economy like all the major economies that are in Europe that used various forms of that kind of protectionism to get them into the place. So for example, the German National Investment Bank would have been entirely illegal to set up under European Union rules, but it is not illegal to run it under European Union rules. Um, we've got 17 mandatory regulatory agencies that we would need to set up before we even qualify. We have to have had our own currency operating by before we begin the initial discussions. And I want to be clear about this. It's not just having your currency. To join the European Union, you must demonstrate that you have all the policy mechanisms in place that you can control your interest rates, which is to see a functioning central bank with a track record. All these things have to be done. And wishing them away is unwise. We can join. Right. It's just that we need to be a little more honest about what it means, what the timescales are. I am personally strongly now an EFTA, EEA, EU progression model. Take a step when your economy says it's ready for the next step, signal the destination that you want to get, say you want to be Europe, say you want to work closely with them, you're not going to have the dumb hostility that's been generated between Britain and the EU, but be honest about the stages that you've got to reach to get in there in a way that's good for Scotland. It is all doable. We need to have this conversation among ourselves soon right. to get the details right so that when we're asked this in public, we know what we're talking about and we're not getting ambushed with questions about how are you going to get 17 regulatory agencies set up. We've got some of them, we don't have all of them. Right. Okay. Gillian. Gillian, the same cocktail there. The border, European Union, the currency. And you don't, you don't have to be, for everyone, you could just pick one or two if you want to. I, I think probably one of the, I think two of them are linked, as Robin um, said about EU and, and money. I would like to see us with our own currency, our own central bank. It lets us um, have our own macroeconomic policies, set interest rates, which basically lets, which would let us as a country plan for crisis, which is one of the things that we, we don't have control over just now, which I think is, is really important. Um, I think that leads into the whole, I would very much like to see us back in the EU, but I recognise that that's, that's quite a, it's quite a long, it will be a long process for an independent Scotland, I think, because not, um, 
the not so small elephant in the room of, of Spain and what that would signal to um, independent parts of Spain that they could do as well, I think is, is a huge problem. On, on the border, I'm not, I'm not an expert on borders, um, but I think very much I would like to see something that allows and addresses the, the concerns of some of the communities in the borders, whether they are yes or not, that for their livelihoods and for their general lives, some of that cross-border um, travel is, is necessary for them to access school, to access um, health services and things like that. So I think that's something that, that we, have to, we have to talk about quite, quite openly. But I'd also like to see more engagement with the general yes movement on this. As political parties, we can often sit and have our own, our own thoughts on these things. We're having citizens' assemblies on climate. We should be doing something, I think, ourselves to have those conversations and to have that general input that sometimes we, we can sit and have a debate, we can sit and have, um, have chats within our own, our own groups and things, but I do think there has to be that higher level conversation of where we want to where but, we want but to I mean get just to. as a matter of interest has there been a debate at the green conference about eu versus efta membership i'm pretty much here to tell you there hasn't actually no <laughs> i not missed one of your conferences and that's not the kind of stuff that tends to get dissected and i don't know has the scottish parliament discussed this in any way i mean it would be over you know that would be presumably considered beyond your pay scale I don't think it's, I haven't seen it considered at Holyrood, certainly. It's, as a party, it's maybe not come to conference, but I have absolutely no doubt that branches will have, will have discussed it and there will have been um, okay. those conversations had other places because the, the discussion at conference is quite often not, not quite as reflective of what the, the more in-depth discussions that go on at branch level and within, within right. interested parties. Okay, Mike. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it pains me to say it, but I completely agree with Robin on the currency issue. Um, the idea of sterilisation and the Growth Commission's position is completely untenable, and we need our own currency, and we should have been doing work on this years ago. <clears throat> you know, um, if, if devolution was an expression that, that, that we exist, and we thought that the problem we were trying to solve was that we needed our own parliament. The independence movement poses a different question that what we really need is our own democracy. And uh, the, the issue of the border, I never really fully understood this. People get very exercised about the border. Of course we should have a border. Of course any independent country should have a border that you can control. And if the pandemic has told us anything, it's that we need to be able to control our own landmass, our own sovereignty and our own border. Can you imagine? We can look to countries like New Zealand who, with the island status, has this much easier. But can you imagine if we were able to close the border at different times without the political and media hysteria that that evoked? So I think that the border is a very straightforward case. We need to be able to control our own border because we will be an independent country and this goes without saying. And I'm just curious, have you a view on the European Union, EFTA? Do you want to be in, do you not? Uh, I, I want to be in Europe. I think people voted overwhelmingly to be in the European Union. I understand the criticisms of Europe and its limitations. I would want to be in but with another referendum to 
ratify that. Um, I think we are a European nation, and we will be again. Okay, um, Selma? Okay, um, you told me to write them down, and because I was a good girl guide, I wrote them all down. But um, see everything that Robin said? I had one word written down, and that was preparation. Because that is what is missing in the whole of this debate, the preparation. <laughs> I, I can't come at this as a politician or even as a party member. I don't go to branch meetings because I don't belong to any political party. I can only tell you what we hear on the doorstep with Edinburgh Women for Independence. So the notion of a currency, I still get I belong to a women's walking group. I still get women in that walking group who say, quite obviously my age range, couldn't possibly have independence, my pension will go. Couldn't possibly have independence because we, 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 we don't have our own money, Selma. Okay, I asked them, where do you think the Bank of England gets their money from? I swear to God, one of them turned around and said, oh, they print it. Okay, they print their money, why can't we print our money? Well, we don't have any banks anymore. So where is the preparation to have that type of question and answer and debate ready in detail so that when the yes movement is out there talking, we have that information ready? I don't know whoever asked the question about the cryptocurrency. I don't know if that was the chap that stopped us in Portobello because we, we had our root in a boot stall in Portobello about two and a half weeks ago and that's exactly what that guy came up and spoke to us about. All he wanted, all he believed that would solve our problems was a cryptocurrency. So we said as a backup, as a reserve, but if you cannot convince people that they're pound shillings and pence, which then becomes a Scottish currency, is going to be secure. How are you going to convince them that a cryptocurrency is going to be secure? The majority of us don't use it, don't understand it, wouldn't want to touch it with a barge pole if we thought we understood it. So don't go about saying that that's going to solve all our problems and that has to be our first priority because it can't be. Right. EU membership, the question isn't going to be, do you want independence and go into the Union, the European Union? The question's not going to be, do you want independence and keep the monarchy? Those are preparations that we have to go through prior to making the, to giving the answer, do we want independence, should we be an independent nation? So unless we prepare for that, can you imagine the type of literature that we will see about borders. They're going to produce glossy pictures that show drop-down gates whereby you've got all the lorries not getting in with our food that we need because we've put up a border and then they're gonna have all the cars the other side trying to leave Scotland because we're too wee, too poor and too stupid to run our country. So we've got to get that preparation in place. Obviously, it's not going to be gates. It's going to be, uh, you're going to have the electronic tagging on cars and vehicles. You're going to be checking things away from the borders. But you've got to have that in preparation. Right. Good. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the old time going on, but that was excellent, Selma. And obviously, just a top tip here, 
you know, if you're back on the kind of streets of Stockbridge and you're on that cryptocurrency thing, just don't, don't talk to Selma about it. <laughs> right, Colin, next on the three big difficulties. The three big difficulties. Can you actually see the River Sark from Gretna? I've never been. <laughs> um, the first thing I'd say to you, this question is, uh, it's very clever of you to pick up the issue of the border because it's obvious that this, in any second referendum takes place, the unionists are going to make this a big issue because they think people are frightened of the change and the kind of thing that we're seeing today in Northern Ireland between the North and the South. And I think what I would like to see, I'd like to see an independent Scotland with the same border arrangements as we have just now, tracking straight and forward with our biggest partner, which will remain England after our independence, with family ties respected, and with England and Scotland continuing to work together the way they do just now. That's surely what we want to see with an independent Scotland, that kind of relationship with the next nearest neighbour that we have. On the EU, I have to say, um, listen to the panellists, 2016 is a long time ago, isn't it? On the referendum day, I was in Madrid, not on my holidays, I was helping Podemos and the elections to the Spanish Parliament that took place the Sunday afterwards. And on referendum day, 2016, I was in Madrid, 10 o'clock at night, they were asking me, I was in the bar, which I do occasionally, <laughs> and they said, Colin, tell us, how do you think the result's going to go back there in Scotland and Britain? And I said, well, I think it's going to be close, but there's going to be a Remain majority. Dong, 10 o'clock, the exit polls, Remain by a slight majority, and they're buying me drink all night. <laughs> I wake up on the Friday morning and we are hangover like you probably had yourself, turn on the Sky News, Dong. Completely wrong. But when I go back to Edinburgh on the Monday, the Yes Hub has got a giant EU flag in the window where the salt tire used to be. And I have to say, I voted to remain as the lesser of two evils. The European Union is no friend of Scotland. It's no friend of the Scottish people. But because the choice was that the Leave side were led by charlatans like Farage and people who wanted to blame foreigners for our problems, I would have nothing about my advice to my friends and colleagues in the independence movement is let this issue go. Leave it alone. The vote took place. It was agreed democratically. Let it go. We don't need to join the EU. If we decide to join the EU, then it should be a referendum we decide after we're independent and not before. That's my attitude towards the EU. And I think that's the way we'll go forward, quite frankly, because this issue is lessening and lessening and lessening. Britain left the EU 18 months ago, and that issue is diminishing as far as I'm concerned. And that's my answer to that question on the EU. And on currency, I have to say, I'm going to let you into a secret here. I can't see anybody, so I'll just presume there's nobody here. But see on the Yes Scotland advisory board that Michelle and I sat on, there was a famous meeting one month in 2014 where we decided by a majority at that meeting that Scotland should have its own currency and that should be the position that the independence movement yet Scotland had. And I remember Blair Jenkins uncomfortable about it and Nicola was there and others and it was decided to leave that decision standing for a month to see whether our fears about the polls and the opinion polls about where we stood in a currency to see if it changed the next month. We were assured by the SNP at the time that there was internal polling was going to show that the idea that we kept the pound was going to be more popular instead of being an Achilles heel. 
And I have to say, it's my one single regret on the Yes Scotland Advisory Board for two years. That was the occasion for the majority, myself, Michelle, Patrick Harvey, Pat Kane, Elaine C. Smith, Dennis Ganavan, we should have dissented, we should have insisted, and we should have stuck to our guns and said, the answer here is, we have to have our own currency for monetary and fiscal reasons. We have to have our own currency because that's what taking back control is all about. And if you don't have your own currency, you're not truly independent in a world dominated by corporate finance capitalism. Lordy, I didn't actually engineer it this way. Don't I know you. It is a secret, and you've obviously got it off your chest <laughs> after nursing it like wrath for four years. But um, anyway, Michelle, do you recognise that account of the meeting for starters? Uh, well, I wasn't ever on the uh, advisory board, uh, Colin. I think you may be mistaking me for somebody else. I, uh, definitely. That's what they all say. <laughs> no, Colin. <laughs> uh, I definitely wasn't, and uh, I wasn't aware of that. So let's deal with the matters in hand. What, one question that nobody's asked, because there's been some very good contributions from across the panel, which I'll reflect on, is seeing the issue of borders, what do we think that English people would like to see? Because we've got used to being sold this narrative that, oh, we'll shut everything and make it impossible for you. And, I am at heart an optimist. I genuinely believe that our friends and neighbours south of this country won't want to shut their borders. They will, of course, want to continue to trade with us. And it's just one of these big fear stories. Yes, there will be a border. I agree with Robin about a smart border. And let's not forget that most of our trade with the rest of the UK is in services rather than products. So, you know, what we imagine, the old-fashioned idea of a border is just a lot of stuff and nonsense. In terms of the, the currency, I think I might be unpopular here, but my, my view around having a transition period and, and the points about preparation, I would refer to as a transition period, we have to be very careful at that point of independence that there isn't capital flight, because we have to acknowledge that there is some uncertainty. So I do believe that at the immediate point of independence, we should continue to use the pound for the critical reason, hear me out, the critical reason that most of us here have pensions and most of us here have mortgages and they are long-term contracts. And that is complex to be worked out and it must be worked out. But the reason I said hear me out is the other thing we've not touched on tonight is dual currencies. There are multiple countries around the world that use multiple currencies, not even just dual currencies. So my view is that we will need to carry on using the pound. Yes, sterlingization, but introduce our own currency as quickly as we can. And one thing I would say, absolutely not on day one of independence. We'll make ourselves a hostage to fortune economically. Absolutely, absolutely. Whether we like it or not, we have a duty of care to protect ourselves on the advent of independence. And I suppose my point about, about transition, I agree there's a huge amount of work to be done about how we get to this. And, and I think it's fair to say my view of the white paper at the time 
tried to, and I'm sure did it for the best of reasons to say, look, put people's minds at rest. And of course, what we've got now is a population who are highly articulate and intelligent and have their own views about this. And so I think this kind of honesty in these conversations is very much to be welcomed. Definitely no to cryptocurrency because of the risks involved that are uh, considerable. Um, the last point in terms of the EU, my personal view is that we should seek to rejoin the EU. Not only is it a massive trading block, and we are seeing the significant issues, I agree very strongly with the point that Mike made earlier, supply chains are collapsing all over the place. This is really, really going to hurt. Also, culturally, around the EU, we don't talk about that very much. We hear a lot of talk about business, but the cultural element of it, I regard as very important. I regard myself as, as European. But I agree with Robin. I, do, I think we have to be honest about the complexity and the processes that we need to go through. It is complex. I don't think it's realistic for the EU to sign up to heads of terms, if you like. Well, they will want to hedge. This is the nasty, dirty business of politics, and therefore it's incumbent upon us to continue to persuade people that taking, taking the steps forward to make our own future, to create our own future, can only be better than the determined, evident decline of the EU, of the UK rather, as expressed by the Tories. That's what we're looking at. Right. Well, look, thank you for that. Um, I'm vexed that you weren't the woman in the room because that's a fascinating tale from, from Colin, um, which, you know, adds a certain sort of critique to what many of us were quite surprised to hear Sorry, from Alex Salmon back in the day, that, you know. Anyway, so let's move on to uh, the, the, the other big question I did want to tackle, which is the question about leadership. Because this question really is, what kind of yes campaign will there be and what, what kind of yes campaign should there be, given that the SNP seems pretty determined to run a campaign on its own? And I suppose implied in that too, a campaign for what? Since at least some of the panel don't think there's going to be an independence referendum anytime soon. So really, what should the yes movement be doing now? And how should it organize itself? So that's what I'm asking. I'm trying to think now who has not gone first already. And that is Selma. Okay, what, sh what should the Yes movement be doing? Oh, well, first of all, I go back to the notion of it's an amalgamation. It's a movement, and a movement has to progress, and it has to take on new ideas and new people all the time. And therefore, that makes us totally distinct from politicians. I'll be honest with you, I don't believe any politician should lead a movement. Let them lead their parties, let them have their ideologies, let them have their manifestos. But a movement comes from the people and stays and is owned, and is owned by the people. Now, at the weekend past, we saw Believe in Scotland do something that we haven't done for how very uh, long, and that was a day of action across Scotland. Now, with or without that, Let's be totally honest, I can't speak for any other organization and I'm not really speaking for Edinburgh Women for Independence at this stage, but we are exhausted. We have been going on from 2014 to the moment and we need to see a determination from the politicians 
to move the politics forward. If we don't get what we've just been talking about, the preparation, the ideas, what are we saying to people out on the stalls? What are we saying to people when we're out there? We're waving flags? Okay, that is hearts. We're, uh, we're, we're waving our banners, okay, that is hearts, but you've also got to get the minds with the actual hard facts. You've got to be able to give that as well as the hearts. You want the hearts, that's fine. You want the minds, we've got to be prepared, and we've got to have the pockets, because if the economy is not working, if the economy is going down, then the then we all become dissatisfied. We have got to show where we can be different. We, I don't want to say we can be better, but we can be different from that which is befalling the rest of the United Kingdom because okay. we are ourselves. But, because but Selma, the that. question is very much about the Yes movement. I mean, it's disparate. It has, I could stand here for quite a long time listing the various organizations. Yeah. Any thoughts about how the Yes Movement should organize itself? Should there be one Yes Movement? That is so difficult. I mean, the last time we were together was on the SIC panel. I think it was the same when I was with Robin, that was the last time. And where are they now? And where, let me be very honest, Alice, ask the question, where is the Women for Independence movement? We are all doing our own thing, and that is the big problem. I do not advocate one uh, particular leader, but I'm genuinely now asking the question. Because of the success, okay, there hasn't been much time to, um, to analyze it all, but because of the success that we, uh, think that we've had over the last weekend, is BIS going to morph into the new umbrella leadership? And is that what is required? I don't know, and that's being totally honest with you. But unless we actually start coming together with some cohesion, we have got a big problem because it's so much easier to pick off components than it is to pick off a whole movement. Okay, right, thank you. Um, if anyone missed the acronym, BIS is Believe in Scotland, which was obviously one of the people, one of the parties organising the Day of Action. Uh, right, Mike. It's okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I slightly disagree. I think that the Yes Movement has never been more united. <clears throat> I think that we are a united movement ready to move forward who have been put in abeyance through COVID. Um, but I, I think I've got some specific thoughts about what that movement should look like. First of all, the climate crisis that we are faced with is an existential crisis for the world. It dominates everything. We cannot think of or conceive of a new democracy without thinking about it in terms of the climate crisis. That's just a reality. So the new Yes movement will be different from the 2014 movement because it will be facing hard up the code red crisis that the IPCC has presented us with. That must mean that there cannot be a Campbell oil field and we need to completely reconfigure our economy and our ecology. Secondly, I think that the new Yes movement will be about pandemic recovery and recreating our economy in, this, in the in the sense of 
the aftermath of the pandemic. Those are two significantly major things that simply weren't there in 2014. I think the best things from 2014 that we need to retain are that we had multiple points of leadership, and we had leadership from below. So we do not want one single yes movement. We need to have self-organized uh, projects and we need to give priority to young people and new voices because young people have been abused over the past 10 years by the climate crisis, by Brexit, by education and by the British state. The other thing I think that we need to mirror from 2014 is that we need to have mass public participation. The best thing about 2014 was events like this, where we recreated town hall and public meetings in the real world and moved beyond mediated space and social media. That is really important to recreate. And finally, the last thing I would say is that we need to speak to society and the wider electorate and not to ourselves. I'd yeah. very much be interested in this question of what you think the actual movement in structural terms should be. Yeah, I, I'd say, I thought um, Eduardo spoke on behalf of a great many people in the independence movement. I'm sure there'll be tens of thousands of people on Saturday marching through Edinburgh in the march who share that point of view about wondering where is the independence movement going? And to cut to the chase about the honesty that I think is needed here. Look, the independence movement is united, but there are, there are genuine differences between us and we need to maturely reflect on that. I meet regularly, I'm sure it's not a secret, I meet regularly with the leaders of the, re the other uh, representatives, parties and organisations that are in the independence movement. And I know, I see with my eyes, I've watched the last five general elections in Scotland where the SNP won them, and to their credit, and they deserved the spoils. They never made the case for independence once. I came from the Labour Party, I was a Labour Party young socialist 40 years ago, and the Labour Party abstractly are in favour of socialism, but they never make the case for it. And this Sunday, Leslie, the SPD in Germany are standing for election, as you know, maybe win this election. But the SPD in 1900, the German Social Democrats, in effect, the, the German Labour Party, decided to dump their commitment to socialism and return for seats in a parliament. In other words, they choose between electoralism and socialism. And I have to be fearful with you and be honest with you, I think the SNP have done the same thing. So the more the interested in winning seats than advancing the case they're supposed to believe with. And I have to say, Leslie, that conflict no, right, in this... So what's no, the movement going to do Yeah, I'm to coming to you, I'm coming to you, because you're asking me about a movement and what kind of movement should be. The movement is based on ideas. You can have any movement you like without the idea of you knowing where you're going. You're not going to have a movement. So the conflicts that we have have got to be talked out. So centrally, the SNP leadership said to me, Colin, the middle class in Scotland are frightened of independence. We therefore need to placate them. And the message is it means very little change. We keep the pound, we keep the queen, we keep NATO, we keep the EU, we keep corporate capital in control. And that does not encourage the working class communities that are moving who want to see independence about change, profound change, an end to fuel poverty, an end to child poverty, and an end to the very real concerns that are their day-to-day -day reality. And you can't face two ways at once. We have to decide what way we go. You have to decide. Our movement has to decide. And that's the reason for the stasis. 
We're not deciding. We're not deciding the direction we have to go in, and that's why we're not going forward. Solve that problem, and the movement follows. The organisation of it follows. And I have to say, I disagree with Selma and those other contributions. Respectfully, you need a professional, dedicated, skilled leadership. It has to know what we're taking on. We're taking on the British state. They are absolutely ruthless in their determination. We have to be the same. Colin, I have no problem with a professional. All I'm saying is that it shouldn't be a politician from a political party. Well, that's right. where the professionals okay, are. Okay, so Selma. we've agreed on that. But Michelle. Right, thank you. Um, one of the things I loved about the, the Yes movement before was that I mean, I think it would be conceded across the board that people were waiting and waiting for some guidance from the, the, the kind of yes advisory board, and that's not a pop at UConn. Um, they were waiting for guidance and a framework, if you like, and whilst we were waiting for that point, they basically said, well, you know what, we're just going to go and do it ourselves. And so reflecting on what Mike said, this amazing flowering of ideas and exchange if you like. And that actually, in my opinion, was what moved some people from maybe I, maybe no, to no, I definitely want to do this because I used the analogy at the time. It was like you said to your kids, I've hidden your Christmas presents in that cupboard, but you're not allowed to look. So even if they sneaked a wee peek and then they shut the door again, that imprint of what could be possible was imprinted on their retina. And that changed a lot of people because that was the germ of a seed that grew. So I'm not against, and I think it's very healthy for the yes movement that we have all these different ideas. And I said that at the start of this evening, it's okay to disagree. We all have our own ideas. I can sense your frustration about, but what specifically should be the structure? I can see that there could be some kind of structural board, as long as we recognise that it doesn't then all be like a wee boys football team where the ball's there and everybody runs after the ball and then the ball moves there. We have to have sufficient freedom for these ideas to be discussed. And finishing off on the last point, at the moment, I don't agree that everybody thinks this and everybody thinks that. Yeah, I reflected earlier, there's a lot more maturity in the discussions we're having. And I'm happy to take some flack about currency or whatsoever because that's part of the discussion. We need to allow that to continue and let the people prevail because that's what's starting, that's what's starting to happen. So we've okay. genuinely got a bit to go yet. Right, sadly, we don't have much to go on this, <laughs> on this debate. So Robin, it's a cruel thing to ask both Robin and Gillian to be very brief. It might be an impossible thing in one person's case, but Robin. <laughs> it's the most difficult question in my life, without any shadow of a doubt. I can only speak personally now. Um, the most wonderful thing that happened to me in the last decade, other than my children, was the independence movement. No question about that. The most horrible things that have happened to me since are the independence movement. It has been really, really difficult. I spent the first part of 2015 with my firm belief that we had to move forward through respectful pluralism. And I cajoled and badgered people to say we need a, a, a forum where we can sit around and look each other in the eye and behave like grown-ups to each other and I pushed and pushed to reform the Scottish Independence Convention and it was attacked and it was smeared and it was suppressed and terrible things were said about it and we pre pre 
prevailed and we kept going and everybody tried to do things and, and they didn't amount to the sum of all their parts and people became exhausted. And I don't have any answers anymore. The first, if the movement as a whole wants to be a movement as a whole, then we all, and that's not with the exceptions, we all have to sit around a table and look each other in the eye. We can't decide before we walk in the room Who's the, who's the dominant partner, who's, who's to do as they're told, who's not going to tell us things. Who's not, it's not working. It's not working. So I can only really offer you this. Um, two things. First of all, in pure practical terms, if we're going to have something that's a movement, there needs to be some core of consent. There has to be something that everybody, give or take, can offer some consent for. And I'll just tell you this. It's no the fucking Growth Commission. There needs to be something. <laughs> there needs to be something that doesn't treat large parts of the movement with contempt. And of course it'll involve compromise. And of course it means none of us get exactly what we want. But it can't just be dropped on us and told, agree or you are the enemy. And that's how I feel. Agree or you're the enemy. And that's no good. And I'll, be, and I'll be really honest with you, I get phone calls from activists and they really say I'm despondent and I'm down. I, I don't recognise the most united we've ever been at all. And they say, I don't know what to do. And I've come around to saying, listen, enjoy your life. You'll know when there's something to do again, but I don't see it right now. I, I don't know what to do. But because I can't be leaving you all miserable, because <laughs> I'm feeling oh, it. Oh, go on, Robin, you can. I can't leave you all miserable. I'm going to tell you one thing from you know, years of my activism and years of studying activism, which is you have no idea how, much, how often it feels like this just before a breakthrough. So if you look throughout history, everything's obvious after it happens. And the example that I keep giving is Rosa Parks didn't sit in the white man's seat because it was gone well in the civil rights movement. She sat in the white man's seat because it wasn't going well, because it had stalled and because things weren't moving. And it was an act of frustration. And afterwards, it's easy to look back and say, there it was, that was the moment when it changed, that was the break point. But that's looking back from history. I am not despairing of the result of them coming back together. We will come back together. We do agree in more than we are divided by. But we have to be given the space and permission as a movement to move together. And I can only say this, the difference between leading and wanting to be followed is so, so big. Leading involves giving. And this is where I come to in the end of this. Until we have leadership that wants to listen and give, I don't know how we achieve the respectful pluralism that I believe in and the respectful pluralism that I think is our only damn chance of winning this most essential battle that we've got ahead of us. Gillian, <laughs> last word, the movement. So I think one of the, the absolute beauties of the movement is how broad it is and how diverse it is and the differences of opinions and the fact that there is a debate about what we want Scotland to be and that we have to that there has to be a compromise because compromise sometimes brings out brings out the best of everybody's thoughts and the best of everybody's aspects I agree I agree that this has to be led from the grassroots we're not going to convince people with with me or with any other politician standing up and saying 
this is what this is what you want this is what we have to go towards it's by people like all of you convincing people like all of you that this is a scotland that we that we want and a scotland we can make and it comes back to that that taking people with us and that is that is a grassroots movement through and through so i don't think i know people are tired i absolutely absolutely understand that and respect that tiredness and the the frustration with with where we're at but I, the one thing that I don't think can be taken away from the whole movement is that nobody knows how powerful that they can be within that movement and how much power can come from as Robin said small small decisions that we may look back on and say that was the point but for everybody everybody can be the change that we need to see everybody can take forward that change and I think that that's maybe sounds a bit twee, but I think that's maybe the renewed hope that we need to go forward with and the renewed energy from somewhere. I get we're tired. <laughs> the renewed energy that we need to find from somewhere to keep going and know that we're right and that if this is the right outcome for Scotland and this is the outcome that we will get for Scotland. Great. Right, well, that has been a stoter, actually, and that's all because of you. <laughs>